Tits up is both an expression used when things have gone terribly wrong and a phrase coined as a rallying cry to stand up straight, own the stage, and knock them dead. There are few things in this world that can make your life go tits up more quickly than a breast cancer diagnosis, especially for adolescent and young adult women. This podcast is meant to give us AYAs, a feeling of community, understanding, and power, helping us to walk into each day with a feeling of tits up. Hello, listeners. You are back on today with Megan and Sam. Sam, say hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So today we are more or less just going to be having a conversation. Sam and I were discussing feelings the other day and how your feelings and emotions change over time throughout this whole cancer process. Um, So let's let's first just start with the feelings right when you are diagnosed. Um, Sam, do you want to go first? What it was like first right when you were diagnosed? Yeah. So at first, I think I had, I don't want to say a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, but I was a little bit angry at all the healthcare providers because for a long time, they told me I didn't have cancer. And you kind of deep down know that there's something wrong with you, or at least I did. So I was a little bitter at all of them, but I was also like, I'm going to show them up and have no side effects and like, you know, just be the best cancer patient ever. But obviously it doesn't always go to plan like that. So I remember getting my kind of chemo teaching from my nurse and feeling a lot of emotions when she started reading off all the possible side effects. And in my head, I was like, it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me. It's just kind of like when you get cancer and you're like, it won't be me. It won't be me. Yeah. And then it's you. So (laughs) I had a, (laughs) so I had a lot of those kind of flooding emotions, like what's going to happen. I think when you first get diagnosed, emotions tensions are the highest because you're like do I need chemo do I not need chemo how big of a surgery do I need do I need multiple surgeries am I gonna have this am I gonna have that was that kind of your experience as well Megan yeah I think I mean I don't know if in the beginning is the if I would qualify it as the worst but it is the most stressful I think because there are so many unknowns Um, you know, you don't know if you're going to need chemo. Like you said, you don't know what stage you're at. All you know is I have cancer and that could mean so many things, especially with breast cancer. I mean, there are so many different types as we've talked about, you know, I mean, is it still in the duct? Has it spread? And, you know, like what's, what's going to be going on with my lymph nodes? Um, is it in both breasts? (laughs) Is it in both breasts? You know, like I, I found that, I mean, I was salty throughout the entire thing. Um, yeah. I was I was real mad at as we've discussed. Like I I had a very difficult time distinguishing between anger and fear or anger and grief. Um or anger and anxiety. Like it all just came out in me as anger. And what I found for myself is, you know, you can only be angry for so long before you just kind of snap and I would snap all the time you know I was angry 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 and then I would turn into just a puddle just a mess of a human being 
And when I say puddle, I actually have this idea in my head because like I just I ended up on the floor all the time, you know, like it sounds so dramatic, but it was so true. I would just I would be brushing my teeth or something and like leaning up against a wall and then just sink down to the bottom of the wall and just start bawling. And I'm a bit of a control freak. <laughs> For those that do know me, they would agree. And not being able to control the situation, I think is where a lot of the anger came from. You know, um, I, so many times I, you know, I'd be talking to the doctors, I would be talking to my husband, I would be talking to my friends. And that's when I would kind of snap, you know, because you can't be angry at those people. That's when I would have that break and just start crying. Um, and I'm not usually a crier. Like I'll I'll cry at like at like the most ridiculous things, like a dawn commercial where like the duck is covered in oil, you know, boom, crying. You know, there's something about those like Christmas Coca-Cola commercials with the bears, with polar bears. <laughs> I'm always crying. I think they're so cute. But like when it comes to like regular everyday stuff, I am not a big crier. Um, and I, I, I cried so much during this entire process. For me, my emotions in the very beginning were so erratic. Um, like I, I got mad at my husband one time because, <laughs> simply because he was just trying to be like, look, we're not going to freak out. It's not cancer. Just calm down after my, um, biopsy. He's like, it's not going to be that. And then when it came back that it was that, I remember flipping out on him and being like, fuck you. You said it was nothing. As if he yeah. had any control over it, you know? My <laughs> husband just... did the same thing. I asked him over and over, do you think it's cancer? He's like, no, no way, no. And I'm like, you know, all those times you never thought. He's like, I'm your husband. What did you want me to say? What did you expect me to say? Yes, I think it's cancer and my wife is dying. Right. I said, well, no, but maybe just a little, eh, 50-50. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're doing the exact same thing that every person would do. Like, just chill. It's not It's not going to be that bad. And then when it came back and it was that bad, my brain was trying to find someone to be mad at. And that's the hardest thing, I think, about an illness, any illness. You know, there's, who are you going to be mad at? The universe? If you're religious, God, you know, like it, there's no one, you know, if you get a car accident, you can be mad at the other person because they were stupid and they hit your car. You know, um, mm -hmm. there are a lot of opportunities in this world to be pissed off at dumb people. And <laughs> this is not one of them. And I think that that's a really difficult place for your brain to be. Um, and it's it, it, it fucks with you. It, it fucks with your head. Um, oh, yeah. Also, you know, the, the fear that I had prior to my double mastectomy was something that I have never experienced before. Um, you know, you might as well have been telling me that you're going to amputate my leg or my arm, you know, and it was, it was coming in hot and there was nothing I could do about it. Um, I, I was such a mess the day of the mastectomy. I mean, what how how did you hit well you <laughs> i remember this we've talked about this before you were more or less excited that for the double mastectomy yeah, because, like get it, get it out of me right oh yeah i had had at that point a palpable lump for over a year so 
And to go through chemo infusion after chemo infusion and still feel that tumor on my chest was, to be quite frank, a mind fuck for for lack of a better term that I don't wish on anybody. I think having cancer in general, but every day I would feel this walnut grape sized lump directly on my chest after throwing up for four hours because of the chemo treatments. And I think those were kind of like my rock bottom moments. I would, I would sit in the shower and be like, oh my goodness, this is never going to end. Or, you know, I'm going to die on this bathroom floor just because I felt so awful. Obviously, it's not the case. It didn't happen. But I've also it's been right in here. the infusion center, right, where people have coded and they've gotten taken out. So it's so crazy to me that we don't kind of recognize those big emotions and stuff like that. Like people tell you to go to support groups during during treatment and blah, 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 blah. But there's none available for people like us. Like I, I think we both found a lot of consult online on social media, which is so bizarre. Yeah. It would be the last place that you would think to get cancer support, I, or at least I thought until I looked it up. Yeah. I mean, finding those Facebook groups, I mean, that's how you and I met. Finding mm-hmm. those groups was really, really, really helpful. Um, you know, even just anytime a new person would join and they would be like, I'm losing my shit. Like I was yeah. just diagnosed. What the fuck? Those were actually my favorite <laughs> posts because it made me feel like I'm not crazy you know I mean once people have been in this for a while you have all of like the really really helpful posts this is what I did for chemo treatments to make myself feel better or this is what I did for this or that that's those are the people that have been dealing with this for long enough that their emotions that were up here are now down here and they're capable of handling it I had a really tough time handling. So every time somebody wrote something on those Facebook groups where their emotions were up here, it made me feel so much better because <laughs> I don't I don't think I went through those stages of grief very quickly. Um, I know some people do. Uh, I I didn't have an end in sight for what normal or OK was going to look like. Um you know, for me, I I knew after my first oncology appointment that this was not going to be something that kills me. So that fear went away pretty quickly. I still have the, is this going to come back? Am I going to catch it? Is it going to metastasize before I catch it? Am I going to have brain cancer, lung cancer, bone cancer, any of that? You know, I mean, that's still a very real fear for me. Um, but those those initial emotions were very, very raw for a long time. And they primarily sat around, what am I going to look like? You know, it wasn't, am I going to die after a while? That was the first, you know, is this it? Am I am I going to die at 35 years old? Um, but right. once that dissipated, then it went into, oh my God, what am I going to look like? You know, and I have always had a really tough time with body image i have i mean we're all just going to be frank and honest on this podcast i hated my body i always have she and i have always been battling each other um you know fluctuations in weight the shape of my body i mean i grew up in west michigan where 
you have a huge Dutch population. And by Dutch, I mean tall, blonde hair, blue eyed, just very athletic, tall build, you know, just a bunch of volleyball players. And I am this short, this is fake hair color. I'm short, brown, and brown haired <laughs> and Irish, you know, just like I've always joked that like I'm built to plow a field, not to play volleyball. <laughs> so, you know, I think having that be kind of where I started and, you know, always feeling like I was not the right shape or the right size or the right weight. Um, and then I finally hit my 30s and I finally moved to a different state in a different town where everybody looks different. You know, there is no short brown Irish girl in a sea of tall blonde haired blue eyed Dutch girls. You know, um, I really struggled with bulimia when I was in high school and college. And then when I moved out here to Denver, it was so much better. And hitting your 30s, I think, did hitting my 30s did wonders for my self-esteem. I still struggled a lot, but it was better. And then cancer. Yeah. And <laughs> them telling me that these, these boobs that I have grown to love and this shape that I have grown to finally be okay with is now going to be ripped apart. And that fucked me up in a way that is it it felt so insurmountable at the time um also coming from the midwest there's there's kind of this idea of you know as soon as you graduate or as soon as you're in college you got to find somebody to marry like if you're not if you're not married by 25 you're going to die alone like that's <laughs> that's what it that's kind of the mentality i mean nobody says it but that's kind of the mentality so okay. Having been newly married and, you know, finally starting to feel like maybe I want kids, you know, I had never wanted kids before I got married. And then Cody and I kind of started talking about it. And I had been going to the OBGYN just to kind of get checked to make sure that, you know, I, I could still because I was 34 at the time, 35 ish. Um, if there were going to be any problems, you should check me out. And she's like, Meg, you're not going to have any problems. Like the door is kind of starting to shut. So maybe let's talk about it if you want to have kids, but it's the door is not shut for you. Um, and that was about six months before I was diagnosed. Oof. So when, when I started really talking to my oncologist and figuring out, you know, where do we go from here? Is it going to be tamoxifen for 10 years? So basically fake menopause, medically induced menopause for 10 years and then what I get off of it at 45 and I go through real menopause no fuck off like I'm not going to do that um you know and I could have stayed on the tamoxifen and then gone off of it like a lot of people do um you know we had Courtney on recently and she was talking about okay. how she went off of it for a little while and so that she could get pregnant and mm -hmm. that that was an option for me but as I kind of sat with it and as I kind of thought about you know, what? what is the long-term going to look like? Like, take the babies out of it and everything. Like, what makes sense for me right now? It made sense to just do the full hysterectomy. And we're talking, like, cervix is gone. Ovaries are gone. Uterus is gone. And I was just, on a Thursday, just 
balls deep in menopause. I woke up and I was having hot flashes and everything. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I even told you this, Sam. So I woke up in, after that surgery, I woke up in the maternity ward. So when oh. I finally like came to understand where I was, I'm looking around and there are like these posters in the room of like how to properly swaddle your baby and how to change a diaper and all of these other things are like on the wall of this really nice room that they had me in. And I understand why they had me in there. You know, a lot of the same um, items are needed. You know, they had these like cold pads. They look like actual pads that you put in your underwear, but you could like mm -hmm. crack them and they turn really, really cold. And that felt fantastic. By the way, just like sticking that down there. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's really helpful right after somebody has a kid. Um, but for me, I lost my shit. I was bawling. And my husband had gone home to take care of the dogs real quick. I knew that he was coming back. It was fine. But the nurse came in and found me. And I was so fucking mad and so angry that I would wake up in this place. Like I just lost all of the ability to ever have this done and you've got me looking at pictures of how to swaddle the baby i'm never gonna have like i that's tough <laughs> i was so bad <laughs> so bless her heart she like takes blankets and towels and like covers all of them for me and got me hooked up with like an ipad so i could just like watch some like youtube or whatever and just kind of hang out but that that kind of floored me um right and i not I mean in an emotional way. Like, I was starting to do a little bit better. And then that. Um, I've, so I've been Megan, talking for a really long time. No, like, you, <laughs> Megan, I, I have to ask. So, we, uh, I, I at least say a lot of the time, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Would you do the same thing again and still have the full hysterectomy? I have thought about that a lot. Um. I wondered before I had it done if I was going to regret it, and I don't. I don't regret Good. it. And if I had to do it again, I would do it the exact same way. But Good. I think as we've, as all of us know, you know, I, if I had to do a double mastectomy again, I would do it. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm okay with it, I guess. Like, does that make sense? Like, I, I'm yeah. still salty. I'm still salty about it. I still hate that it happened. I hate that that's a decision that I had to make. It's not fucking fair that we are put in these positions um, to make long-term decisions for ourselves, for our body, for our health. But they're going to always take something away from us, whether it's, you know, the ability to breastfeed a baby if you have it or, um, you know, even have one. What, what I ended up doing for those that don't know, I've mentioned it before in a few episodes, but I ended up freezing my eggs. Um, I scoured the internet. I found the right medical code through Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and I found a way for them to cover the freezing of the eggs. Now, I still had to pay for the medication that we had to, like, shoot into my ass and into my stomach every day um, to get me kind of prepped for that. Um, but, yeah, it's it was it was tough. So to answer your question, yes, I would do it again. I think it was the right call for me. I still have the option of having a biological child down the road. If we want to, we would need a surrogate. Um, and that's its own whole bag of 
emotional issues, you know, somebody else carrying my child for me. You know, I mean, even as a kid, the thought of giving birth just I, I couldn't. I couldn't. It's too stressful. It's I that level of pain. Like I don't. I never wanted it. And then I just got to an age, and I just got married, and it's really what I wanted. Mm-hmm. It's no longer an option. But you know, I mean, I guess we're just gonna have to figure that part of it out. The whole babies thing down the road. But that was it was a decision I should have never ever had to make. So I'm yeah. in the in the shit of it. I am, I stand by what I did, but I'm not happy about it. <laughs> yeah. For me, I could not imagine getting a hysterectomy at the time I was diagnosed. Um, that would seem like highway robbery that I just wasn't yeah. okay with. I was completely not okay with getting that part of me taken away uh, without using it for its intended right. purpose or at least trying to. That's that's kind of the way I thought of it. And I was pretty hell-bent on not doing that because I think it's easy to say, yes, let's starve all of the estrogen out of your body. All of the estrogen out of your body will never be starved out no matter how no. hard you try. You're an AYA for a breast cancer patient. Yeah. You know? You're built to have estrogen in your body no matter how much you try and prevent it from going away. Um, and I think personally, I'm not the best tamoxifen taker at all. <laughs> I think that is a, I think that's a whole other story. But the 10 year thing, I think, is a little bit ridiculous. And I think it's very overwhelming for a bunch of women. For me, I was like two years of chemo infusions and then 10 years of hormone therapy. That, that seems um, excessive. That seems very excessive for like a one percent chance of getting this. Yeah, it's also an everyday reminder, you know, like God forbid you be having just a good day, finally, and then you go home. Like I take mine at night, or all of my pills. I don't have tamoxifen, but I have an aromatase inhibitor. So every day at night, I'm taking my pills, and it's another reminder, you know, these little reminders that just flash up, whether it's a hot flash or taking your pills or you know, um, I even though I, I didn't go through chemo, I lost a ton of hair and I think it was all just stress induced. But I had I usually very, very thick hair and it became really thin. I had this tiny little ponytail and I don't like I even just like brushing it. I'd be in the bathtub and like doing something with my hair and I just had clumps coming out all yeah. the time. And I think it was stress. It would come out of like different areas I found. And it took about a full year for my hair to kind of like thicken back up again. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> and none, of, none of it is fun. And I mean, I could go on for forever about it. But one thing I think that is interesting, though, is even as AYAs, so under 40, the, the give or take 10-year difference between you and I, had such an implication like I would not have done what I did I would not have had a hysterectomy if I was 25 I I wouldn't have but then for me at 35 I'm thinking okay 10 years puts me at perimenopause or at least or regular menopause (laughs) you know like it's just perimenopause (laughs) perimenopause it's just back-to-back menopause for me you know, like that 10 year difference. I'm going to be like fighting the system, you know, am I going to hit this first? Am I going to have, and then I'm sure like, I, at least 
I'm speaking for myself if I was 35. Like for me, I don't think I would have done it. I think I would have been like, okay, like I need to try and have a baby now. You know what I mean? Because in five years, the risk of a pregnancy from 35 to 40 is just crazy. You know, when you have to weigh those risks outside of your kind of cancer recurrence risk for me or for myself. So yeah, which is just a whole other crazy topic because I'm like, how is there such a big, I, I, you know, I don't consider 35 old, but apparently in pregnancy, 35 is old. <laughs> None of it's fair. I mean, men can be having kids till the day they die. They could be 90 and still knocking people up. Yeah. And for us at mm-hmm. 35, I, I was faced with a life-changing decision. And I had to make that decision in about two weeks, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. And you know, kind of going back into like the body image thing, I, mm-hmm. oh man, that, that wrecked me. You know, like I, I love these. I love the boobs <laughs> that I have now. They look fantastic. They look great. My plastic surgeon is a genius and I don't have any complaints. Um, but have you, let me kind of say it this way. Have you ever heard of the, the um, what is it called? Like the picture of Dorian Gray? that story Mm-mm. so it it was written a while ago and it, it was i'm completely blanking now that we're talking about i'm completely blanking, <laughs> okay, it, which okay. is ridiculous um but it's it's this story in like victorian england and there is this guy he is very attractive he's wealthy he's just got the world by the balls right and mm-hmm. somebody paints a portrait of him and I'm trying to like nutshell this story real quick, but basically he kind of like sells his soul to the devil or something. And like his real, like how he really looks, who he really is, is shown in that picture. And he continues to live and never ages, never grows old, is still always highly attractive. And, you know, his wealth continues to grow and he hides this portrait up in his attic. And every now and then he'll go and look at the portrait And it's just this wrecked, like, you know, this horrible looking figure. And, you know, because he's he's kind of a shit person. So he goes around the world doing shitty things to everybody because he knows that it won't affect him. But this picture grows old and gets, you know, gnarly and mangled and whatever. And that's the real version of him. So I say all of this to kind of say that, like, in my mind... I I felt like I was that picture and what I showed the world was Dorian Gray. So I I felt like I was flat and inverted. I had these horrible scars all through here. I had that huge chunk of skin under my left boob that, you know, wasn't healing and almost fell off and I had to go to the um hyperbaric oxygen chamber for forever for it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that huge scar is still there. Um, Yeah. And then I had the emotional state where I was just this gnarly, mangled, just angry little bear. And nothing was making me happy. And I really felt like I could do my makeup. I could do my hair. I could, you know, for for a while there before I had reconstruction, I could put like the fakey boobs into a bra Mm -hmm. and try to fill it out, you know, the the outward picture that I was giving the world was so much better than who I felt like I really was. And I felt gross, I guess. 
and not gross in like a smelly way or something, but just like I would never ever a distorted from yourself or what yes. you you know considered yourself at the time. Because what I always exactly say, distorted is a really uh, good word. For that. <laughs> yeah, I felt like everything was fake. Nobody saw the real me, and the real me was ripped apart and never going to be okay again. Um, I mean, did you have anything like that? <laughs> so this is tough for me because I think I went through a period of that where I was like, wow, I'm not me. I'm not myself. But for me, I'm a person that goes to extremes rather quickly. I have kind of like an obsessive personality. So if I like doing something, I'll keep doing it. Or if I feel sad, I'll feel really sad. If I feel happy, I'll feel really happy. And it's not like that all the time. But just I, I believe the mind is very powerful and you can, you know, kind of convince it wherever you want to, depending on the circumstance. And what was hard was there was no myself anymore or old me there was there was but like we've said before you not only have to grieve that version of yourself but you also have to like acknowledge that you don't go back to something or somebody that you were pre-diagnosis especially a cancer diagnosis when you're now post-cancer in survivorship in remission whatever the case may be maybe still in treatment in my perspective, there is no going back. That person is gone. The day you got diagnosed is the day you changed, at least for me. I know that. My mentality changed. I immediately toughened up. I created this little brick wall around me because I had to. I had cancer at a young age and people would just be coming into my life or coming into my business X, Y, and Z. And so I had a reputation almost to protect, right? Because you're so used to going to work or doing this or doing that and you build that persona of yourself and keep trying to maintain it and it's just not reality so for me I always try to tell people that there isn't necessarily a new normal either I'm constantly every day trying to discover who I am and I constantly think about things differently and have a completely different perspective since getting diagnosed with cancer there's a lot of great things I love about her I love her. She she uh, is much more empathetic in a lot of ways. She's also has a much different perspective than she did before. But also, I'm definitely much less callous when it comes to some things as well because I'm like, ah, oh, fuck it, I've had cancer, you know. <laughs> yeah. What else? So I mean, when things are going I, wrong for other people. You're like, well, shit. At least it's not cancer, right? And that right. that's also tough in relating to other people, relating to family and friends and stuff, like when they're having a problem, it is, it's a real problem for them. But then in my head, I'm like, well, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. You know, like no one's dying. No one's going right. to chemo. You're going to be okay. This is just, you know, this is just a little blip on the radar. And I struggle with being flippant to other people's problems now. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, especially in my, my area of work, you know, like you right. need to be, you need to be with people and <laughs> right. on their level. And I, yeah, I, I struggle with disregarding other people's problems. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> no, no. I think that's so honest. I think that's so honest. And I think so many women are going to resonate with that. I do. It's hard when my husband, my husband broke his 
broke his toe a year ago and <laughs> he still brings it up and I literally have to tell him like oh you know like I you spent that whole year throwing up because of chemo right about your your toe that's broken I'm so sorry or when he has a cough that must really hurt <laughs> yep yep here's here's the violin <laughs> um so I I understand that and I I completely resonate with that it's so hard for me to I don't want to say take into consideration but just you know deep down empathize with them because there are so many emotions that we're talking about today that people don't see people see the chemo people see this people see that but people don't see that oh I'm no longer that young and healthy 25 or 35 year old that I was before or that I worked so hard to be I'm forever changed due to something I couldn't control and I do think that made me a little bit more bitter I also think it made me a little bit more aware of my life and my surroundings and maybe a a little more grateful for my everyday life and the more mundane things at least in my perspective so I think there's give and take to it and I honestly think it's very hard for people outside of our cancer community to see because some of those can come off less than lighthearted as as emotions and I don't think we need to because I always say that my intentions are almost always in are in the right place and if they aren't I'll I'll try and let you know ahead of time (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I do think you know there's that phrase like you know be kind everybody has everybody's struggling in some way or something like that I I know I didn't get that right but I think you know what I mean um And that goes through my head a lot, you know, like don't, don't freak out at the person that's driving extra slow. Don't, you know, maybe, maybe they're driving somebody home from the hospital, you know, like calm down. Everybody is struggling. We're all just doing our best. And sometimes our best is not that good, (laughs) but it's okay. You know, just try again the next day. So it does give me more empathy. I have found Mm -hmm. where People struggle. We're all having a hard time. But, you know, when it's something like my broken toe, you're like, oh, pumpkin. Like, I am so sorry to hear that. <laughs> so sorry. So Most sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, relating to people has become um, a little bit difficult sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that hasn't really stopped. I I really didn't have any tolerance for anybody's shit, anybody else's. I didn't have the capacity to handle yeah. anybody when I was like actively in treatment. And, you know, mm-hmm. not not going through chemo, it's kind of tough sometimes for people to understand like what was active treatments. Just to make it clear, I think I had like nine surgeries in eight months, something like that. So it was always a surgery or if I was, um, so I was always going into surgery and then recovering and then into surgery and then recovering. Um, I had, I think four of those surgeries so far have been reconstruction surgeries. Um, and then it was the freezing of the eggs and having Mm -hmm. shots and everything. Now, when you have those shots in your ass, in your stomach, um, it you get so bloated like i'm not exaggerating i put on like 23 pounds in two weeks three weeks something like that like i got so big and then you know so now i'm i'm flat and i didn't want to be flat if i wanted to be flat that would have been perfect right but i didn't 
So I was flat and kind of inverted. Um, I had all these crazy scars. We finally just got everything kind of where it needed to be, sort of. I had the um, expanders in, which they look like Tupperware on your chest, you know, like just none of it was good. And then on top of that, I'm on all the steroids from, you know, from everything. I had this big old moon face and I've always had cheeks. Mm -hmm. Like this is kind of a normal face for me, <laughs> but it was so big and my body was so big and nothing fit. Like I remember going to Goodwill just to buy really, really big pajama pants that I could wear around the house. Cause like nothing fit. And then you go into menopause after that. And not everybody, I'm sure, but a lot of people out there that are listening to this will agree with me that it is damn near impossible to take weight off during menopause. Um, in fact, you put a lot of weight on. And it has taken me about a year and a half to lose what I call the fake weight. You know, like I didn't, I didn't eat enough cake to get that big, right? Like it was all medically induced that I was so bloated. Um, mm -hmm. So it's taken about a year and a half to get all of that out of my system and at least get back to a weight that I am sort of comfortable with. But again, it's just, it is, it's just salt in the wound over and over and over again, especially when you already have been struggling with your body image for your, your your entire life frankly i mean i that that has been me like my entire adult mm -hmm. slash teenager and on life has been one big struggle with her <laughs> her being my body um and i felt i was so mad at her for a really really long time i was so mad at my body for betraying me for doing this to me and I was working with my therapist on this and she's like, look, she's like, you are not at a point right now where I'm going to ask you to start trying to love your body. You know, she's like, I'm not going to tell you to stand naked in front of the mirror, which I couldn't do for the listeners. I could not stand naked and look at my body for about six months. I avoided mirrors. I didn't want to know what I looked like. I just knew I looked like shit. Like my That's skin tough. was shitty. My hair was falling out, you know, in big clumps. Mm -hmm. All of this was just fucked and I couldn't look at it. Um, okay. So when I was talking to my therapist, she was like, look, we're going to start small. I don't want you to love your body. I mean, I do, but like, that's not what I want <laughs> you to work towards. I want you to work towards neutrality, just being neutral with her and trying to find, because my body did, or my body, my brain did create this division between who I am and who my body is. I had never really had that before. Like they were two separate entities almost. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe this goes back to trying to be mad at somebody when there's nobody to be mad at. I just became mad at my body. Um, so it took me a while to at least come to a neutral place where my body and I were not actively fighting with each other. We, <laughs> but... We can coexist. We, we can coexist. And I understand yeah, that she's, I, doing, <laughs> she's doing her best. I'm doing my best to heal. And maybe someday we'll come back together. And just for the record, I'm like, I, I think I'm there. Like, I think I am to the, I'm past the neutral point. And I'm finally to that point where I'm okay with her. Like, we're friends on again. <laughs> we were friends off for a long time. We are friends on again. Um, so that's yeah. good, but 
for anybody listening out there, that's if you're anything like me, and I know not, you know, there are people out there that have no real issue with that. But if somebody out there is anything like me, it's going to take a while. Just strap in and just tell yourself that you don't have to quickly get back to that point of being happy with how you look and how you feel. Just just shoot for neutral. You don't love it, but you don't hate it. You're, it just is. And then eventually, I think the love comes back and the appreciation for your body and what she did for you during all of this. I, it will come, but it's going to take a minute. Like, don't. Yeah. We'll rush it. Or you could be like me and mentally detach yourself from your breast. <laughs> oh, you know, it's no big deal when they get cut off and you don't really care. And then when you get breasts put back on, you're like, whoa, what a phenomenon. Amazing. <laughs> so grateful. Totally. So grateful. Uh, <laughs> Blair, so if you're grateful. listening, <laughs> no judgment here. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Sam. Um, I, this is apparently a thing for some people. I, I don't think this happens to most people, but it is an actual thing and it has a name and I don't know what it's called. But when my expanders were in, I think they made a little bit too big of a pocket. Like there was a little mm -hmm. too much room in there. Okay. So you put the implant in, right? And you have the flat side. I'll just go like this. You have the flat side and then you have the roundy side. And the flat mm -hmm. side is supposed to go up against your chest wall, right? This is how implants work. Thank you, Megan. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm I'm here for the people. So that's how they're supposed to be. My pocket that was created by the expander is a little too big. My implants flip as in <laughs> the flat part is now here with the roundy part being back here. And I'll look down sometimes and I have pancake tits. Like they're just, they look like two flat pancakes. Yep. <laughs> You've told me and, that. <laughs> and I would have to go to the to the plastic surgeon and like put my arms around both of them and bend over and they would have to like try to flip them back. Oh my God. And it used to hurt so bad. Finally, I hopped on YouTube and I taught myself how to do this, how to flip them back. And I mm -hmm. felt like a god. Like I found some lady that had a double mastectomy, but she didn't have nipples. So like apparently that's fine for YouTube, right? So she was topless with her no nipples. And so I guess it's not getting canceled. And she was showing people how to flip them back. Oh, my God. It was a game changer. But I'm going to have to have another surgery to, like, shorten up that pocket, I guess, so they stop flipping. But that is that is another thing that is not helpful for your body image and feeling okay about yourself. It just made me feel almost like robotic. Like there was a whole part of me that was just not attached and working mm -hmm. the way that it was supposed to. It just, it made me so mad all the time. I think a lot of women will definitely resonate with that because I've seen a lot of posts like that in the group. I'm pretty lucky. Uh, I had pretty small breasts before, so and I have pretty dense breast tissue, which means it's pretty tight and easy to cut, apparently, from a surgeon's <laughs> perspective, as compared to more uh, fibrous breast tissue, I guess. So mine are pretty tight, but it also means you can see almost every single ripple that naturally occurs in the implant because you know you got to think of what Megan was saying that flat surface which would be against your um, chest wall think about the implant sitting on a tabletop this is the tabletop um, that flat part's going to be right on it but then it's obviously going to have that rippled side on the top and then when you're 
skin isn't closed over it, you will, you know, see all of those things. So yeah. that's this thing that I struggle with. But again, like, I'm grateful that I had the option to have reconstruction. I know so many women that had failed, completely failed reconstruction or half failed reconstruction or this or that. And I do grieve with the fact that I won't be able to breastfeed my future children. But at the same time, I did what was medically best for me and my myself at the time. And like I said, I'm grateful to have had that and in the future, if I want to get them taken out, I'll get them taken out. If I want, want, want whatever, yeah. you know. Did you, because you have this, I, I've noticed, and I, I love it. And you're talking about like detaching, right? Where you just, I, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm just not going to deal with that. Has that worked well for you? And I mean, this um, in like the nicest way. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. like, I, I am incapable of doing that, it seems. Um I can do it in my job. I can do it in a lot of places in my life, this compartmentalization. I'm actually really good at it. But when the like cancer just overtook me and I was it was the it was a new thing for me. I had mm -hmm. never been in a place where I had this thing that was all consuming. Mm -hmm. Um so like you and I have I, talked about this and I'm wondering if it really does work well for you or if you find yourself like at some point kind of breaking like I did. Um I think I honestly, and this is not me under-exaggerating, I think I probably cried about five or so times during active treatment. And I don't think that was healthy because I think my bo I bottled up my emotions to a point where I had no other option but to cry. But at the same time, I would rather cried five times than 25 times, I guess, in my head. Yeah. And as for the surgery, I didn't grow up infatuated or in love with my body or my breasts I wouldn't say it was to the extreme that you had where you say you always hated my body um, but I disliked it a lot of the time uh, and I'm not going to say particular particularly my breasts but to a certain extent yes so and they were hurting me potentially killing me so the worst of the worst option was they had to come off. That was what I saw. So I do think it's part detaching, but for me, it's also baseline realism. A lumpectomy was not a good option for me. My minimum option was a single mastectomy, one of my breasts. And I was already so young that I had a great chance of developing cancer in the other breasts. And I had some kind of freaky formations going on already. Um, not that they were cancer, but I'm just saying I had some structures forming. So that being said, for me, I saw them as trying to hurt me and kill me. And I was never a fan of them anyway. So the worst of the worst, they needed to come off, get out of there, et cetera, et cetera, yada, yada, get out of the party. But the best part I saw of that was having the chance to have breasts that I liked more than my original breasts because I had a say and how they were constructed yep. yes I had a scar and yes I had this but I also had cancer so the fact that I had that option I felt grateful for um if there was something wrong with my leg and it had to be amputated or something like that the only way to get normalcy in that state is to have a prosthetic or something this is like an internal prosthetic covered <laughs> covered with yep. your actual skin and I don't think there's many other places on your body where you can do that or say that so I 
don't want to say I consider myself lucky because that's also a part of the spectrum in detaching and whatnot. But I do because I am still alive and I do have reconstructed breasts that look normal and anybody who sees me now would not think I'm a cancer patient. So I think I do have to be grateful for that bottom line regardless, especially because there's a lot of cancer patients that don't. So for me, it's very much helped because I'm very grateful for that. And I think my blame and anger went at the chemo and the hospital and just the lack of focus on women our age having cancer, because that's who I really blame here. I don't think the system is set up to help us. No, I don't think the system is set up to benefit us nor support us. So I think you have all of these different emotions that surface and you grieve the loss of so many things in a certain amount of time. Whereas when you're postmenopausal, which most breast cancer patients are, you've had children, you've uh, gone through menopause or you're going through menopause, right? So you're not going to grieve the loss of functioning sex organs and reproductive organs. Um, you're not going to grieve the loss of having, you know, I don't want to say autonomy taken away, but just kind of your bodily functions and not having control over that chemo, the perspective of dying, all of those types of things. But we do, um, you, you don't have to grieve the loss of possibly not being able to pay your bills for a month or having your income cut in half because you simply didn't expect that and you were building up your career. It's kind of like having a kid in a way where your life kind of has to immediately completely stop. When you have cancer, it's very similar and there's no way to prepare for that or I don't think grieve gracefully through that, maybe after the fact, but definitely not during, at least for me. And I think it's much, much harder when you're AYA obviously dude i was not graceful my husband just so sweet about it and he's always like you i'm so proud of you and you handle it so gracefully i'm like bro i was on the ground <laughs> bawling all the time like it, it was almost as if like all of the emotions from everything that had happened in my life all of a sudden got an excuse to be let out so i just had a very rocky few months because just everything every trauma big t little t trauma they, it was all coming out all at that mm -hmm. time and also i don't know why people focus so hard on handling it gracefully either i mean i found myself being really embarrassed with how i handled things a lot of the time just with how Aww. emotional i would be and not really feeling like i had any control over what my emotions mm -hmm. were and i would get embarrassed of that and survivorship is messy. Mm -hmm. Going being a patient is grueling mm -hmm. and messy and emotionally charged. And there's there's this expectation to handle it well and to handle it with grace and to be to be the perfect cancer patient and be the one that people look up to. Fuck that. Fuck mm -hmm. that. If you're listening, fuck that. Like Feel the way you feel. Be messy. Be gross. If you don't shower for a week because you're depressed, fine. Like, we upped my antidepressants. I was about to get off of them, I thought, before I was diagnosed. I'm like, oh, I'm feeling a lot better. Things are going well. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I think we need an extra 30 milligrams of this nonsense. <laughs> let's, let's kick that up a notch because I'm a train wreck. And it's okay to be a train wreck. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I get it. If you have kids and you got to keep it together during the day in front of the kids, fine. I'm talking about when you are by yourself or you are there with your person, your spouse, your husband, your wife, whoever it is, and or just completely alone. And you're having those moments of such intense anger and grief and sadness and loss and fear, frankly, for what the future is going to look like for you. You know, if you're feeling that, go feel it. And if you're feeling that and you feel like you're in a position that you can't show that or you're with people that you can't be that way around, go get in the car, drive out to a field and just scream. I did that once. It was incredibly cathartic. I felt Mm -hmm. great for like the next three days. I just screamed and screamed and screamed in my car in a field. Again, incredibly dramatic, especially to say it now to a bunch Mm -hmm. of people. (laughs) Or screaming into your pillow. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm way too loud. The pillow's not even going to. (laughs) It's not going to do a thing. That's why I was like, get the Jeep, go somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and just scream inside the Jeep so nobody calls mm-hmm. the cops, you know? Like, yeah. But I, I lost my voice that day. I was shaking. I was like, but as soon as I got home, I laid down and I fell asleep like a baby. <sighs> and yeah, I haven't I had that a really in a listen. really long time. That's great. Yeah. I mean, again, free therapy. <laughs> free therapy. I know. And there yeah. are also times you just want to sit quietly, you know? Like, I remember going to my therapist one time. And I had just gotten out of a doctor's appointment and I stopped to get, I don't know, Subway or something and walked into her office and I was like, can I pay you to just sit here in silence with me for an hour? Can we just say nothing? And she's like, that's fine with me. So she got Mm -hmm. me a water and we just sat there and I cried a little bit. I laid down on the couch and just sat in silence. And that was also really, really helpful. So, I mean, all of this, I'm, I'm, blathering on right now but basically all of this is just to say that i i don't think there's a right or a wrong way to feel don't hold yourself to some sort of standard mm-hmm. arbitrary standard that i don't know society expects um to have an inspiring cancer journey just because yeah. we're young for some reason none of us are heroes here none of <laughs> us are heroes we got dealt a shit hand And you're going to deal with it in some sort of shitty way. Now, if you come out of it and you happen to be inspiring to people, God love you. Like, well done. But don't, I'm being on the tail end of this, at least, looking back at it, I tried really hard to be put together in front of, you know, family or my husband's family or whatever, you know, and to smile and to still be very cordial and do social things where all I wanted to do was dig a hole and just go die in it. You know, if you don't want to go, that's cool. If you want to do that, (laughs) yeah. if you want to dig a hole and just go sit in it for a long time, do that. The emotions that I felt during cancer were the most intense that I've ever had in my life. And I felt like I had no control over them. And in retrospect, that's fine. I, it made me really uncomfortable at the time. I didn't know what to do with all of my feelings. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are, I, I had some people in my life that just kind of bounced, you know, we're, we're going to have a whole episode on like cancer ghosting. And, you know, that that affected me, too. Um, yeah. It's it's just fucking hard and it's going to be hard. And there's nothing you can do to make it not hard. 
So just make sure that you surround yourself with people that aren't going to be scared off by you having a bad day, um, mm -hmm. whatever that looks like. <laughs> yeah. I always joke that cancer forces you to feel all of the emotions that I uh, reluct was reluctant to feel for the good majority of my life. So again, I'm grateful to have felt those and experienced those now, but not so much at the time because as Megan has said, those emotions aren't what they actually are at the time. It's a lot of anger. It's a lot of sadness. It's a lot of frustration. Fear. It's a lot of fear. Exactly. It's a lot of those basic top five all wrapped into one and all disguised <laughs> as something different. And they're like, hi, I'm fear. Hi, I'm anxiety. Hi, I'm sadness. <laughs> hi, I'm anger. What are we it's doing almost, today? It's almost like that Disney movie. Have you seen that? Not up, but it's a Pixar one with like the little girl and she has all the emotions in her head and they all have different names. Have you seen that? Am I just, I, I look that up. Of course, this I is like menopause. That. I just, I just forget <laughs> things all the time. I forget basic words constantly, but yeah, I'm forgetting the name of this Disney movie. I'll, I'll Google it and find it later for you. You got to watch it. It's unbelievably mm -hmm. cute, but also wonderful. Um, but kind of sad because it goes through <laughs> each emotion has a name in her head and they're like little people that are living inside of her head. Oh. And I watched that during cancer. I had never seen it before. And I was just on Disney, whatever, Disney Plus, flipping mm -hmm. around and found it. And I was like, oh, screw it. And I, of course, ended up just crying through the entire movie. Yeah. Um, but I have found, and this is what I wanted to ask you, Sam. Mm -hmm. I have found that I have become far more comfortable with my emotions now it's not like i like having the big the big feelings the big emotions but i'm far more comfortable now with them and i know how to give them a name you know how to say instead of just i'm pissed or i'm fine because that's really where i lived my life the majority of my life pissed or fine nothing really mm -hmm. in between now you have you know fear sadness um I don't know, the range of emotions. I can now give them names. How do you feel about your, I guess, your relationship with your emotions now versus before? Like, has it gotten better or has it gotten worse? Oh, um, much better. And I only say that because I would have not been doing a podcast talking about my emotions <laughs> prior to cancer. I can tell you that with 100% certainty. Mm -hmm. And not because of anything other than I feel as though throughout my childhood and just career adult experiences I've had, it's been a mantra, let's say, to be tough and kind of bury those emotions. Um, so now I have a podcast discussing a lot of emotions, especially when getting diagnosed and having a very personal cancer diagnosis. So I think that's a very monumental step in the right direction. And although I don't necessarily love to talk about them, I so, so, so realize the importance of them because in the two years of active treatment that I have, had, have, it's, I've experienced literally, I think all of the emotions combined in my life until now and then some. I'm literally like, wow, I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be much more emotional or as comparative to this because you just go through so many forced emotions and I think a forced growth as well whether you want to or not because yep. 
no matter what, you cannot suppress those feelings and emotions. And whether you say, I'm mad, I'm scared, I'm mad, I'm scared. Okay. Why are you mad? Why are you scared? Those are <laughs> the hard, hard questions to answer, right? And those would be like, oh, wow, I'm scared because nobody really came to see me or cared to see me when I had cancer. So is anybody come to going to come to my funeral? Probably not. I guess that this is a pre-look at how my death is. Um, but I had, that same, <laughs> I had that same thought. I'm, I'm just, I'm, again, yeah. I, I, it maybe shouldn't be surprised when somebody says something that I thought about. Because again, like it can get really dark. And I have found with, you know, doing this podcast, just to be honest, like I, I love doing this and I want to do this mm -hmm. and I want to create a community where we all feel like we can talk and be honest and raw and open. But I had so many thoughts that, well, let me kind of back up. What I meant by all of that is, you know, while this podcast is cathartic, it reminds me a lot of different things that I have actively and successfully suppressed and mm -hmm. now I can't suppress it anymore because we're talking about it consistently. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm probably going to need to take a lap after recording this <laughs> yeah, episode yeah. just because I'm now thinking of all of these different things that I've pushed down so hard. Um, but I remember thinking to myself, why, if I am, I am so depressed and I can't see a light at the end of this tunnel and I am like, I, I, whether or not people would agree with me, this was my thought. I am so unattractive. My husband will never want to touch me again. I'm going through menopause. My vagina is as dry as it could possibly be. Sahara Desert down there. Nothing happening, right? Like, I am broken. I am bruised. I am ugly. I am fat. I will never see the end of this. And I remember being as... I don't want to say straight suicidal, but as close to it as I've ever been. And Mary, what's the point? What's the what, meaning? Why am here? I trying? Why right. am I trying so hard to stay alive if this is what it's going to be? If, if I got cancer under forty, <laughs> is this a sign right. that I shouldn't be here? Is that what the universe right. is trying to tell me? Should exactly. I just call it quits now? If I'm going to get cancer in ten years, what's the point? Will I have said? effort and I should have said that a decade ago I think yeah. if we all I think everybody who listens to this podcast and in our community will resonate with those thoughts and I guess trigger warning post trigger warning we're not directly yeah. talking <laughs> about suicide um but just kind of those very what I call rock bottom thoughts um and feelings yes. what's the point it was why like, am I here what is how did point? I get cancer <laughs> yeah. if if I it wasn't I want to kill myself, right? It wasn't suicide. What it was, though, is do I care if it happens, though? If I do die at this point, like, I was so dark. And, you know, again, we'll we'll figure out a way to talk about this, obviously, more in depth. Listeners, y'all are going to get to know us real, real well. <laughs> and I, I don't want to make this whole episode about that. But, you know, your thought that you mentioned, which is okay, so no one's here. Like, it was my husband, my parents, and about three friends. And I have other family members. They weren't there. I have other friends. They weren't there. It's a harsh who, reality. Who Nobody prepares you for funeral. that feeling. It, 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 that's exact. It's like getting a preview to your funeral. 
And I think that's oh. what's scary. I've never been a person to have birthday parties or when I end up being pregnant, I don't think I'll have a baby shower because I have nobody to invite. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's it's true. And it's kind of, I think getting cancer gives you a preview to your funeral and who's going to show up because I'm not going to say I was on my deathbed, but I could have been. I mean, yeah. really could have been. <laughs> so, Well, here's the thing. Crazy. It's way easier to show up to a funeral than uh-huh. to show up for the person when they're sick. Uh-huh. I have had so, not so many, but it's it's been said, well, I really just don't like hospitals. Or it oh makes my me goodness. just kind of yeah. uncomfortable. Bitch, do I yeah. like the hospital? Do you <laughs> think they I'm make it about you? Myself? Right. Am I enjoying myself? I didn't pick this. The bare bones least you could do is give me like a donut and an apple juice and show up and hang out for a minute. I don't give a fuck that you don't like hospitals. Sorry mm-hmm. for you. I think we need to combine this into another episode with maybe cancer ghosting because that's just such a big topic. And it's such a it is. raw and real one too because that's a preview to your funeral. <laughs> that's how I would consider it. And it is hard. It is hard to hard. really see who who will show up and not show up and you... You also can't express that anger or be mad. That's what's also hard. And so, like I said, we're just kind of getting on a tangent now. We'll have we to are. put this we into a, a whole new episode. But I think that just goes to show that once you start talking about emotions and all of the emotions that come along with getting diagnosed with cancer, survivorship, treatment, um, diagnosis, active treatment, post-treatment, scans, all of those types of things. It just comes kind of cumulatively at you at once and can really hit you. So I'm so glad that we got to talk emotions today, (laughs) Megan. Um, This was a hard one for me because, as I said, I, I, you know, wasn't very emotional prior to cancer in this podcast, but it's helped me grow in so many ways. So I am grateful for that. And I cannot wait for the next episode with you so thank you so much for talking emotions with me today please send us out on a positive and wonderful note well first of all i would go to your funeral and i will absolutely go to a baby shower (laughs) yeah you're you're gonna have a baby shower at some point when you get pregnant and i will be there with a whole bunch of stuff um so there's that this is going through this whole thing is the worst way to find the best people Some of my friends that I have met through this, you included, I I can't imagine my life without them now. And for those listening, you know, we we did get a little bit raw and you will always get that from me. I I don't know how to be any other way. Um, But I, I want, without being cliche, I want to make it very clear that it does get better. It will take a while and there will be times that you feel like it will never, ever, ever get better, but it will. I still struggle with it every day. I am not somebody that's going to stand on a platform and say that everything is fine now. Because it's not. It's Everything's still fucked. You know? But you become more capable. And again, I don't want to say stronger because we have a weird concept of strength, I think, in our society. You think you can't and then you expand. That's the easiest way. I like that. Exactly. You will figure it out. It will get better. And we love you. (laughs) Uh, This family that has been created, at least for me, 
through cancer has been wonderful, necessary, and an absolute godsend. So whether it's on Facebook, whether it's reaching out directly to Sam and I, like that's what we want. We want you guys to reach out to us. Tell us what you want us to talk about. Tell us who you want us to bring on this podcast. Um, what are you struggling with? We can even have you on and you can talk to people about what you're struggling with. Let us know because you are not alone in this incredibly isolating experience. Cancer sucks. Make sure that you have a community. And if you don't have a community, reach out to us and we'll make sure that you find one and you have us. That's, that is my, my little message at the end of all of this. Was that positive enough? <laughs> <laughs> that was terrific as always Megan listeners thank you for listening and uh, stay tuned for our episode next week we are not medical professionals and we are not giving medical advice everyone's experience with cancer is very different and just because we did something one way does not mean that it is necessarily the way that you should do it if you have any questions about your health and well-being please contact your doctor